The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. So when's the last time that God really surprised you? His character, something he did in your life, something you read about in scripture. When's the last time God really surprised you? I I like to ask myself that question pretty regularly because if I get into a rut where God is just completely predictable and everything that I'm learning about God or thinking about what he's doing seems like, oh yeah, I already knew he would have done that, then maybe my faith has become a little too stagnant because God is this a great, big, dynamic God who we, we will never plumb the depths of who he is and, and what he does for us and with us and, and through us. And, and so if I ever ask myself that question and I can't think of a, a moment where God surprised me recently, that, that just causes me to, to start to uh, re-reflect, say, okay, Lord, am I, am I letting my faith become too stagnant? Uh, and... and I start with that question because the text today, there's a lot of surprising things in here about how God works uh, in partnership with Paul in in Acts chapter 16 that I'm really excited uh, to dig into with us today. Actually, speaking of surprises, I thought I was going to give a completely different sermon based on this text. Uh, And then earlier last week, I had one of those uh, long, intense conversations with Ricky that I've mentioned two weeks ago. And I realized there's so many fascinating riddles in Acts chapter 16 that I couldn't put it down for the rest of the week. And so it, it kind of morphed into a, a new, new way into this text for me. Uh, and we're kind of picking up on a theme that, that Ricky and I have hit on the last couple of weeks on discerning God's will. And the way that Paul partners with the spirit of Jesus in this chapter, it, it's just fascinating. So I'm excited to dig in. Uh, let me pray for us. And you can turn in your Bibles or if you have your hand out here. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 6. God, thank you, uh, Lord, the the song that we just sang. You are so faithful. You have uh, brought us into your covenant, into this incredible relationship with you, and you you desire to to partner with us. Uh, Lord, we don't deserve it. You are the one leading us, guiding us, walking us forward, and God, we just stand in awe that we get to be a part of what you're doing. Uh, Lord, would you speak through us, speak through me, and through this text, would it challenge us, uh, equip us, encourage us today? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So there is a lot going on here. We're about 40 verses or so. We're not going to read it all today. I'm going to get into it a little bit. Uh, Let me just read the first, the opening section. So this is, uh, if we remember where we're at, chapter 15 of Acts was this really important moment where they had this council to try to figure out where where do Gentiles and Jews stand together in this covenant relationship with God. Because of Jesus, we are all equal members in God's family. Uh, And then uh, last week, Ricky dove into this uh, really hard moment. After that great win, Paul and Barnabas have this sharp disagreement. They're fighting over whether or not to take their companion Mark, and they end up splitting. And it's it's a really sad moment uh, in the life of these two men, in the life of the church. Uh, But Jesus is still moving. He continues to work through both Paul and Barnabas, but they've split ways. They had this really sharp disagreement. And then... uh, 
we read this. So at chapter 16, I'll read a few verses, starting in verse 6. So this is, uh, Paul is now with Timothy, Silas, and actually by the end in verse 10, Luke joins the company. This is the first time the, the word we shows up in the book of Acts. Luke is writing Acts, and in Acts 16.10, he says we, like he kind of just slides that in there without letting you know, but he's now a part of Paul's journey, so that's kind of cool. He's writing the first person there. Uh, So they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we'll stop there for a minute. This is just a fascinating insight. One, there's a lot of questions I still have that I wish the text actually told us. Uh, But, you know, what's going on here? They're trying to do mission. They're trying to plant churches all over the world. They're they're joining with Jesus in, in spreading the gospel. And twice, the Spirit forbids them to enter a certain region. They're trying, they go, they try to go into Galatia, into Asia, and the Spirit forbids them. Then they try to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. That that must have started a way on them. That's a bit of a downer, right? Uh, And actually, it's fast. This, This hit me this week. This is the first time Paul is in the driver's seat. This is the first time in Paul's life that he's actually the, the central leader. Before that, if you read through the story of Acts, it seems actually pretty clear that Barnabas was the, the head leader and he had recruited Paul to help him. So Barnabas is the reason why Paul was in ministry. He went and found Paul, brought him to, uh, uh, what's the place? I forgot. Antioch. Antioch, that's right. See, we got some Bible scholars in the room. Um, but, but Barnabas was the one that recruited Paul to Antioch. They started ministry together. One little clue back in chapter 15, when the Jerusalem council drafts that really important letter, they name Barnabas first in the letter. So it seems, I think when you think of the duo of Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas was actually the leader and Paul was his partner. Uh, you know, and so now they've split and, Bar- and Paul finds himself in the leader's seat for the first time, making all the shots, calling all the shots. Uh, and, you know, as I think about that, maybe we could look back at what Ricky preached last week and, and conclude, you know, it might have been very true that God wanted them to part ways. God might have been setting them up to go and do different ministries. It was really sad how it happened. They didn't have to have that sharp disagreement. They could have come together in the Lord and in this mutual respect, say, you know what? God is calling us into different regions. Let's part ways, but instead they, they were fighting and they had this sharp disagreement. And so the, the way that they split was really unfortunate, but maybe the reason uh, ultimately was actually for a good reason. Uh, maybe God wanted Paul to start taking more charge in ministry and become the leader that he was destined to be. Uh, so the first two decisions that Paul makes seem to, to be hit with dead ends. He says, well, let's go into Asia and the spirit forbids him to go there. Okay, uh, you know, this probably all happened over a couple weeks. Okay, so let's try to go to another region and the spirit of Jesus didn't let us go. Uh, I'm just thinking about Paul as a new leader making these kind of decisions. It it might've weighed on him. Maybe he was fully confident. You know what, this isn't my fault. Jesus is just telling me I'm not allowed to go there. But from the outside, it kind of looks like this new leader keeps making choices that are failures. 
Uh, and so I, I wonder if his companions, was there a little doubt in their mind, like, does Paul really know what he's doing? Why, why, why do we keep getting dead ends at every turn? Uh, what's going on here? Uh, the, the questions that I ask is, well, how did the Spirit forbid them? Was it a vision? Was it a, a prophetic voice? Was it a dream? I, it doesn't actually give us much clarity, which is, that, those are the kind of questions I would love to know. Um, I, I can trust Jesus, if I'm working with you and partnering with you, that you're going to stop me before I go too far. But how are you going to do that? It, does it look the same every way? It doesn't actually get into the details of how, how did the company know that they weren't supposed to go into Asia. But apparently, they, they were confident that Jesus was saying no at this point. And so they kept trying. They kept working. Uh, they didn't just go, r- retreat into some vacuum and say, well, let's just sit down in a room and pray until we know where to go. They kept doing work. Uh, this, all of these geographical regions took time to get places. So they were continuing to walk with Jesus, trusting that, you know, when we get to this place and the door's closed, we can go somewhere else. So they were still working and moving and trying to figure out where are we going next, but uh, also trusting God to stop them if they were going into the wrong region. Uh, another just fascinating insight into Paul's ministry God forbids him to go to Asia at this juncture, but in just a couple chapters, he does go to Asia. Asia is where you get Corinth and Ephesus. He does great ministry in Ephesus. That's in chapters 19, 20, 21 of Acts. Paul does make it back to Asia eventually, and uh, the things that he experiences in Asia are really hard. He sees incredible ministry happen there. He, He meets some of his closest comrades in Asia. Uh, but he writes in 2 Corinthians how his time in Asia was like despairing of life itself. He says, we, we had to fight wild beasts in Asia and we despaired of life itself. So the things he's going to encounter in just a couple years when he finally makes it to Asia is really hard. Uh, and, and maybe just to think about Paul as this new leader, the reason why the Spirit stopped him here was because he knew, Paul, you're not ready yet. I need you to get down into Macedonia. You need to, you need to have some more experience. I, I have some other work for you to do over here before you're going to be ready to face what you're going to face in Asia. And so, in essence, this being forbidden by the Spirit is not God saying, you know what, those people over there, I don't like them, and I don't ever want you to preach the good news to them. It was more of a not yet. Not yet, Paul. You're going to get there eventually, and it's going to be hard, but I have to prepare you first. You're going to make it to Asia. And that's where we get the book of uh, Ephesians and, and Corinthians. They're writing around in that region. Uh, but instead, Paul gets a vision from a man of Macedonia to come to Macedonia. Macedonia, just so we can kind of center that in Scripture, is where Philippi is. So the, the letter to the Philippians was written to the church in Macedonia. Uh, and so they conclude, I think God wants us to go there, and so they make plans to go to Philippi. So that, that's just, yeah, thinking about how, how did Paul and the company discern God's will in that moment? They're working, they're partnering with Jesus, they're trusting that they're in an actual relationship with God, and so they're listening to the voice of God telling them, not here, not here, go here, and they go. Uh, but it, it keeps showing up in different ways. Uh, it's the Holy Spirit over here, and then Luke writes, and it was the Spirit of Jesus, and then Paul gets a vision, and so it, it's not a cookie-cutter approach. God doesn't speak in the exact same way every single time, but eventually they realize we're supposed to go to Macedonia, so let's go. And this is where all the riddles really begin, because uh, I think everything Paul does in Macedonia in this text 
makes me pause and just question. Like my curiosity meter was on full alert when I was reading chapter 16 because every, every decision they make is kind of antithetical to conventional wisdom. It's not what you would have expected them to do. For one thing, Paul sees a vision of a man from Macedonia telling them, come and help me. And the first people that he actually reaches are the women by the riverside. So even Paul realized this, is a, this vision is, is a general vision getting me to Macedonia, but I'm not looking for that exact man that I saw in my vision because the first person I meet was Lydia on the riverbank. And Paul starts a church with these women who are worshiping God at the river. Uh, Lydia was a seller of purple cloth which meant she was really wealthy. Purple was a very high commodity. Uh, it was hard to extract the purple dye. They, they used snails and sometimes some other uh, plants to create this purple that was very expensive because of how it was created. So usually only royalty or the, the upper elite were able to afford purple. So if Lydia was a seller of purple cloth, it meant she was pretty well off. But something about meeting with Paul and hearing the gospel, she recognized her need. She had a lot of means to her, to her disposal, and yet she met Jesus at the riverbank and realized that she had to put her faith in him. And so she becomes a, a believer, and she invites this, these followers into her home. Uh, it seems that she was maybe uh, running, uh, running the home by herself. Maybe she was uh, divorced or her husband had died, but she was the sole breadwinner of her home. She invites them into her home, and they start a church there. Uh, it actually, this is just a fun little side note. It seems that Lydia was the first real like leader of the church in Philippi. Uh, and actually, what we know of the Philippian church, there, was, there were constantly female leaders rising up and God was using them. In the letter to the Philippians, the other two leaders that Paul mentions in chapter four are Euodia and Syntyche, two central leaders to the church in Philippi. Uh, maybe they were also among that band of women at the riverbank that day. Uh, so that's, I just love that, those kind of little tidbit. But Paul, first person they meet is Lydia, and they preach the gospel to her. They start a church in her home. Not, my, not really what you would have expected. I saw a vision of a man from Macedonia. Maybe we would have been a little too one-track minded, and we would have gone into the center of town, and we would have ignored all the women because we're looking for that man that I saw in my vision. And Paul has a little bit more uh, ambiguity about it. He says, I know I'm supposed to be here, and now I'm going to be open. Where is God moving? What, what, who am I supposed to be reaching? Who am I supposed to be impacting? And the first person he meets is Lydia. Well, as they keep going, uh, we're, we're, I'm just kind of paraphrasing a lot of this, but down uh, in verse around 18 or so, Paul is doing ministry in Macedonia, preaching the word, and there's this servant girl who is filled with a spirit of divination who keeps yelling out after them for three days. She's saying, these are servants of the most high God. Uh, and she's uh, in this Roman world. She has masters who are making money off of her uh, spiritual gift. Uh, maybe it's more of a curse. She's a slave. She's being used as an object. She doesn't really have a say in this. It's the, the, the merchants who are making all the money at her expense. But she's going around, and she keeps proclaiming about Paul and these companions. These are servants of the Most High God. And then I like this one in verse 18. She kept doing this for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Uh, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So, so they're more concerned, not with the freedom that Paul just gave to this 
woman, uh, they're more concerned with their revenue. This slave girl was a great source of money because she could predict the future and she would, uh, people would pay money to have her, this spirit that was possessing her give some sort of fortune. And now they're ticked off because Paul just ruined that whole source of revenue for them. Uh, and, and what I kind of set on, this is the little riddle for me of how, how did Paul decide to heal that girl? Because it wasn't some nice holy moment where he was praying and he realized, oh, she's being oppressed by this spirit or she's in slavery and I should set her free. It, it wasn't that kind of motivation. It says Paul was really annoyed. And so he said, spirit, stop, come out of her. Uh, and, and, but Jesus is clearly at work. It's a good thing that she was healed that day. Uh, she, she was being used and she was an object. She was enslaved to these owners. Um, but the reason for Paul doing that, his motivation was annoyance. It's kind of weird, right? Uh, and I don't know, maybe we shouldn't make this like our gold standard for how we discern God's will. But maybe, maybe you, if you're trying to make a decision in life, uh, at least one option that you have available is, well, what's really bugging me right now? Maybe I should do that. What is just really annoying me? And maybe that's the way I should go. I think it also shows this great, maybe the, the playful way that God partners with us. He works even through our weakness. And, and this is not Paul walking six, fit, six inches off the ground, holier than thou, just kind of in this glow, healing people. This is Paul like, down on the ground level, he's just, his, his emotions are coming out. He gets really annoyed, but, the, but his, his approach is to bring healing, not more disruption and anger and divisiveness. So that's really good. Paul is still connected enough with the heart and character of God that even when he's annoyed, he reacts by healing someone. Um, but, but God is still working. God is working through Paul, even Paul's annoyance. God is working through that moment. Uh, so yeah, what, what's bugging you lately about your life circumstance, about our city? Maybe that's where God is actually trying to get you to do something. Uh, I like that. I don't know. Uh, again, don't make that your gold standard. That's not, the, that's not maybe the, the number one way to discern God's will, but it might be a way. God seems to be okay with that. Uh, so these merchants are upset. They drag Paul and Silas before the rulers and they beat them, the magistrates, tear off their garments, beat them with rods, and then throw them into prison. They hand them over to this jailer and say, bind them, put them in the inner prison, uh, we'll deal with them later. Uh, because they're disrupting the Roman way of life. They're disrupting the marketplace, the economy. Uh, and so what we see in this chapter is Paul and his companions are clashing with a lot of the power structures of their day. They're clashing with uh, politics. Uh, that's going to come up especially later with these magistrates, but they're clashing also with the economy. And so money and, and politics, money and power are the two biggest power structures of the day, of, of still of our day, and Paul is clashing with both of them. By bringing healing to this slave girl, he really upsets their owners, these merchants. And the, the, the magistrates don't like the fact that Paul is in here uh, maybe advocating customs that are contrary to Roman law. He, he seems to be disturbing the peace. And so they, they decide, you know what? We're just going to beat them, put them in their place, throw them in prison, let them stew for a night, and maybe they'll, they'll calm down. Uh, so they do that. Paul and Silas are in the prison, and they're praying and singing hymns to God. It didn't seem to phase them too much. Uh, 
It says in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. This text makes it clear that the jailer, this is a Roman system, the jailer was given the direct command to bind the prisoners. And when he wakes up and realizes the prisoners, he, he, so he assumes they escaped, he says, well, that, all that responsibility was on my shoulders. I'm about to die. They're, like that, that was Roman justice for you. And so he was ready to kill himself, thinking that he had failed at his job. And, but Paul, in verse 28, cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Here was the other riddle for me, uh, because there's already been two jailbreaks in the book of Acts. The way Luke has been writing Acts, we are primed for this kind of trope. Uh, back in, was it chapter 3? And then again in chapter 12, Peter was imprisoned. And both times, God opens the prison doors and brings his disciples out. Peter is has this miraculous escape from prison in Judea. He goes into the center of the temple and he begins proclaiming the word of God once again boldly. And then again in a Greek uh, or Roman jail, Peter was in prison in chapter 12 and an angel of the Lord comes, breaks his bonds and takes him out of prison. So we're, we're ready. We're, we, we should be reading this and think, oh yeah, here's another moment where God rescues people from prison makes a lot of sense. And it even says all the doors were opened. Everyone bond, everyone's bonds were unfastened, uh, d- linking us back to those two previous prison breaks. But uh, maybe I could put it like this. Apparently, when God opens a door, it doesn't mean that I have to walk through it. Right? We sometimes think of that. It's kind of like a cliche way of, of trying to figure out God's will. When God opens a door, I'm supposed to walk through that door. But not this time. God literally opened a door and Paul realizes at this moment, we're not supposed to leave. Let's stay here. And he and all the prisoners remain in the prison, even though the bonds are broken, the door is open. What is going on here? We, we're expecting Paul to have this great prison escape, just like Peter did two times before, but he stays there, right? So apparently when God opens a door, uh, it, it's an opportunity. It might be a way for us to then stop and say, okay, what is God doing here? Uh, but what Paul does, the, the, the reason he makes this decision to stay is because he is fully in lockstep with the character of God. He knows who God is and he knows what Jesus is up to. And he's connected enough with God's heart and character that even though this moment, it seems like there's an opportunity for him to just bolt, he stays. And I think it has everything to do with the jailer, right? In this moment, it's the jailer who has put the weight of their imprisonment was put fully on the jailer. He was talked about before they were thrown in prison. They said to this one man, you bind them in prison. Now Paul is, they're praying and worshiping God in the middle of the night and the bonds are broken and the prison door opens and Paul yells out and stops the man from killing himself. Stop, we're still here because he knows if we leave, this guy's gonna die. So apparently in this moment, the heart of God was, look, I'm giving you freedom. But if you use that freedom and just bolt, someone is going to get seriously hurt because of it. And so they have to exercise a lot of wisdom and restraint and say, well, in this moment, God has freed us, but we're going to stay put so that we can save this man. 
And so the heart of God toward that individual was so strong in that moment that they decided, you know what, we, we, we've, we've got to change what we would have expected. We're expecting Paul and Silas to bolt, but they stay so that this man can be saved. And, and he is. He is so overwhelmed. Says, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So this Roman jailer, who at the beginning of the, 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 the night had all the power, he was the one throwing them in prison. He was the one able to, put, to bind them with chains. Now, his power has been reversed, and he's falling on his knees saying, what do I have to do? Because you're clearly in connection with a God that's greater than I am. Uh, and the, the power that I have is, not, is nothing compared to the power that you're connected with. And so he says, what must I do to be saved? And he, and it says, he and his whole household were baptized and come to faith in the Lord Jesus. I, yeah, what, what would it take? This is, it's confusing sometimes. It's a little messier. Uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about how do we discern God's will for our life, for our church, for all of that, like decisions that I've had to make throughout my life. And I want everything to be nice, clean cut. God always acts in the exact same way. And every time he speaks, I, I know exactly what to do. But life just doesn't work like that, does it? Actually, I've found much more like this passage. A lot of times, uh, God may do some, of the sim some similar things in my life, but each time it's a new moment for me to reflect and say, okay, God, what are you doing in this moment? Uh, how am I partnering with you here? Uh, it looks like I'm supposed to go this way, but the spirit of Jesus stopped me in whatever way that looked, right? And then over here, well, it looks like God opened a door, but in this moment, I think God is actually telling me to hold back. Uh, that's an opportunity, but I'm supposed to stay here because there's some people that I'm supposed to reach, you know? And, and so it's a little messier, and maybe that's unsettling for some of us. We think about, we, we want everything to be really clear, like a little cookie cutter. Every single time God speaks in, in the exact same way, but I think this passage keeps showing he does it differently every single time. He's a dynamic God who keeps partnering with us, and the heart of God doesn't change. His character doesn't change. But one time he opens a door for Peter, and Peter runs through it. And one time he opens a door for Paul, and Paul stays put. You know, I think I, I like that. It gives me a lot of hope that the the messiness of my my own life, God is actually working through that. Um, that my life isn't as clean cut as I thought it would be. And that actually gives me a lot of hope that Jesus is still right there beside me. I don't have to think that everything has to become crystal clear every single time. Uh, so they stay. They, uh, they minister to this man, to his family. They get to have a, they, they have a meal together. They brought, um, so the, the jailer, verse 34, he brings them up to his house, sets food before them, uh, and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Uh, but, and so then the next morning, here's the other uh, perplexing part about this passage. The magistrates in the morning uh, send word, you know what, let those men go. They had enough. We, we, we don't need, we're not going to keep them in prison. Just let them go. Uh, and that seems like a great open door, right? <laughs> like, okay, we got beaten and thrown in prison, but the, the magistrates decided to just let us off scot-free. Let's get out of here. Let's count our blessings and go. And I, I like to think, put yourself in the shoes of some of his traveling companions, of Paul's traveling, traveling companions. we got Luke and Timothy and Silas are kind of around with him. Uh, and Paul says, verse 37, what? They have beaten us publicly? 
uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison? Uh, and do they now want to throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Right? If I'm Luke, I'm thinking, Paul, what are you doing? Right? Like, what are you, what? They, they're letting us go. Like, this is a good moment to just counter blessings and bolt. And Paul says, no, actually, this is the moment where I want to take a stand and stir up some more controversy. Uh, see, because they, Paul and Silas, apparently were Roman citizens as well. That's a whole fascinating story to get into. This comes up again later in Acts. So Paul says, you know what? This is the moment where I play my Roman citizen card. Uh, I'm a Roman citizen, and it was illegal for them to beat me without trial. So no, I'm not going to leave. I'm going to make the magistrates come and grovel before me. Right? Like, Paul, what are you thinking? That is, that is not conventional wisdom here. But something about Paul, in, 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 he's, in, he's, fully, he's filled with the Spirit in partnership with Jesus. Paul realizes this is the moment where I'm supposed to take a stand and throw down my Roman citizen card. There's a couple fascinating things going on here. One, Paul, Luke draws this out in a lot of Paul's trial scenes from this moment on, but Paul consistently is acting like a better Roman than the Romans. Uh, he's saying, I know what the law is. You magistrates who are supposed to uphold Roman law are actually breaking the law. And so Paul is acting like a better Roman than the Romans. Uh, it also may be that he's thinking of that small little church that just got started in Lydia's house. And what would happen if they just took that open door and bolted? There's still a lot of animosity in the air. And maybe the, the pressure and the, the brunt of this Roman system would fall on this little budding house church that just got started if Paul left without causing a, a bit of a fuss. And so he takes a stand, says, I'm going to cause a little bit of controversy now to, to smooth things out later. And what happens is the magistrates find themselves in a position where they have to then relinquish their power and start groveling before Paul. Because they're, they're, like, if Paul pushed press charges and it turned out that they unjustly beat Roman citizens, then they themselves could be thrown in prison or worse. Uh, and so they're now scrambling to say, oh my gosh, we're really sorry. Can you just please leave? And they, they, the, the whole power structure of Philippi just kind of gets flipped upside down. But it started because Paul decided in that moment, this is when I pull out my Roman citizen card. I, it's just crazy to me. So just thinking about the ways that Paul decides to do what he does in this story. Uh, taking a step back, I know we've, we've hit a lot of really interesting parts for me. These are all the kind of the riddles that come up for me as I read chapter 16. And it, it really comes down to how are we discerning God's will? And maybe more than that, how, how does God partner with humans? There's something really clear. Jesus is the hero of this story. He's the one that's doing all the work. He's the one that's saving that slave girl, that's saving the jailer and his family. He is the one with the real power in this story. It's not like Paul and, and God are on equal level here. But God continues to partner with Paul. He's working with Paul's annoyance. He's working through all of these interesting situations. He's working through the fact that Paul has this Roman citizen's card. And, and there's this moment where, you know, Paul doesn't just remove himself from the equation and say, God's going to work. It doesn't even matter. But there's, there's actually a, this divine human partnership at play here. Uh, and, and I think that's how God invites us. When we work with him, when we live with him, he wants to use all of who we are, our 
uh, our ups and our downs, the decisions that we make. We're supposed to be uh, human partners with God using wisdom and reason, our intellect, our emotions, our, uh, our, our experiences. All of that is a part of how God works in us and through us. I see that on display here. God doesn't work in the same way every single time. Um, and, and he kind of draws out in some of these really messy situations different approaches to figuring out, okay, God, what am I supposed to do today? Uh, there's this open door, but I think I'm supposed to stay here. All right. Uh, and in it and through it all, Jesus is with him. So I don't know. That was, this has been a interesting, I think, because it's, it was such a fresh approach for me, I'm still questioning a lot of this. So maybe what I'm giving us today is just a lot of questions. Sit in chapter 16 for a while and say, God, there's a lot of different ways that you acted and that you led this group of people in chapter 16 alone. Um, what, what is God doing in your life right now? Are there ways that God is leading, leading you in, into new decisions, into seeing God at work, and in, into partnering with him to reach others? Maybe there's someone that you would never have expected, like that Roman jailer. Nobody would have expected that he, was, he would be the one that gets baptized and saved by the Lord Jesus. He's the enemy, right? Maybe there's someone in your life like that right now. That's just a thorn in your side, and yet God is going to actually use you to witness to them, to bring them to the feet of Jesus this week. And so just to, to be open, I guess, is one application. To say, God, I want to be open for you to partner with me, to actually use me in all the messiness that I am, uh, to, to let me partner with you to make a difference in the world, to bring your kingdom more and more into our valley, into our world. We're going to end with communion in just a little bit. And I'm going to switch gears just a bit because this passage also brings us to that table in a really profound way. The, the center of this whole passage is actually that jailer coming to the Lord. There's this great kind of sandwich moment where it, it starts and ends with Lydia. The passage then goes to the the merchants who have their power turned upside down and the magistrates who have their power turned upside down. And then right in the middle of the passage is the jailer who had all the power but realizes his great need for Jesus. And so everything centers our focus into the very middle of the passage. This jailer was one of the main reasons why Paul was sent to Macedonia. Nobody would have expected it, but he was the one that he and his family seemed to be right at the center of what God was doing there that day. Uh, and so when he sees his whole world turned upside down, his authority came from the name of Caesar. And all of a sudden he realizes that authority doesn't really matter. My allegiance to Caesar is not as important as this new thing that I'm encountering. And so he falls on his, feet, on his uh, face and says, what do I have to do to be saved? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Uh, so Ricky said it really well last week. Jesus is the hero of this story. I'm talking a lot about divine human partnership, and I think that's really true. And this great aspiration for us to, re to realize that God actually wants us to partner with him, but he's still the hero. He's the one that, that made it possible for us to enter his story. It's because of the name of Jesus that we're saved. Paul doesn't say, hey, believe in me. Paul doesn't say, hey, follow me. Paul says, believe in Jesus. Jesus is the one that brings us into a relationship with him. And because of that, his grace that he gives us uh, is that then we can then partner with him. But it starts with what he did for us on the cross.
Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.